Hallelujah. The Lord is worthy to be praised. He is great. He is mighty. Uh, he has uh, given us everything we need in His Word. And He's given us His Holy Spirit that we can look at His Word and have what we call Holy Spirit illumination where He throws the light on the text and plants it in our heart. And so as we come now to the time of the preaching of the Word of God, I am excited because of what God will do amongst His people and what God will do amongst those who aren't His people who He will adopt into His family and transform and make alive. Wow! Is that not exciting to know that? Well, I tell you what, before we move forward in God's Word, let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we bow before You just thanking You, God, for the opportunity to gather together and worship You and adore You and praise You and seek You as a people. Lord, I pray that, Father, as I open up the Word of God today, Lord, that the light will be thrown on Your greatness. The light will be thrown on Your glory. The light will be thrown on Your majesty. The light will be thrown on Your greatness and goodness and mercy and love. The light will be thrown on Your holiness and Your justice. That God, You will be the center of it all because it is the text of Your Word that is communicated. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. Father, speak. For Your people are listening, God. I pray that we will hear what the Spirit has to say in Ephesians chapter 2 today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. We'll take your copy of the Scriptures and open it to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Um, our text for today will be the next few verses, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And we're really only going to hang around in two of those verses. And we'll, we'll hang out in them, Lord willing, next week some more. Um, but I'm not going to read that section of chapter 2 to you just yet. I want to read right now our verses that we hung around in last week, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I'm going to ask you to stand, if you will, for the reading of those first three verses of Ephesians chapter number 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You may be seated. 
Having read verse 1, 2, and 3, the situation is not good. The condition of those described is not good. Not when you consider some other realities. You see, God is holy. God is perfect. God is pure. God is that word holiness. Hagios in the New Testament. Greek means He's separate, completely, totally different from anything else in the created order of things. And God is not only just holy, He is just. God is just. He is perfectly just. And because God is holy and God is perfectly just, and we are perfectly sinful, purely sinful, that justice demands a perfect price. His holiness demands a perfect price. That price is eternal death. That means being under the wrath of God forever. And that is not a good situation. Now, it just so happens that God sent His only begotten Son into the world... To satisfy that wrath that we deserve and sent His only begotten Son into the world to secure the salvation of the gospel. But based on verses 1, 2, and 3 that describe our condition, just because God did that, the situation is still not good. Oh, hold on. Follow me. You see, heaven is real. Hell is real. The gospel that saves is real. But the situation is not good. And you say, how so is that? Well, verses 1, 2, and 3 says we were dead and condemned already that we were absolutely powerless to do anything about this gospel that saves. That's not good. That's not good. The lost sinner is dead. Dead in sins and in trespasses. And dead people don't do a whole lot of stuff. Now, take physically dead people. Physically dead people are unresponsive to physical stimuli. You can go up next time you're at... at, at the funeral home, you may feel weird, but you can go up and you can touch the corpse lying in the casket. It's not going to say anything. It's not going to move. The corpse is not going to scream. The corpse is not, not going to slap you. The corpse will do nothing at all. Why? There's no physical life in that shell of a body. 
It is totally, completely, absolutely unresponsive to all forms of physical and tactile stimuli. It's just not going to do anything. I mean, you take a knife, cut it. I mean, don't do that. Okay? Don't do that. Don't think the family would handle that too well. But it's not going to respond. Well, the same thing is on a different level true for the lost man who is dead spiritually. Dead Spiritually dead people do not respond to spiritual things. They do not rightly respond to that which is spirit. God is spirit, Jesus told us in John the fourth chapter and His truth. And dead spirits cannot respond to the living spirit. Spirit of God. They will be hopelessly unresponsive as long as their hope, as long as their hope depends on them. Dead men are doomed in their condition, spiritually dead. Religion cannot help them. Rehab cannot help them. Moral reformation cannot help them. There is nothing they can attempt to make themselves spiritually alive and fit for heaven and fit for the presence of God. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. So what I'm saying is the situation is not good. So, if it depends on us, we're doomed. Wow. But we're going to read here in a minute that there is some good news. There is good news that makes the gospel good news for dead sinners. We're going to read, I'm going to read, we're going to read together our text here in just a minute, and we're going to rejoice in the fact that there is absolutely, 100%, totally great and awesome news for dead sinners. Because this thing called salvation, this thing called the gospel of our salvation, and the work of this gospel, it does not depend upon us, it does not depend on our work and our ritual, but it depends on God. God, for God is the one who works the salvation. As Jonah the prophet said in Jonah chapter 2 and verse number 9, salvation is of the Lord and praise God for that. That's good. That's good truth. I mean, salvation is of the Lord. It's not based on what you do or cannot do. So, in the midst of our spiritually bleak condition described in Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, 
one where we are dead in our sins, one in which we are following the course and the philosophy of the world, one in which we are following Satan, and one in which we are living as the sons and daughters of disobedience, one in which we were at that time by nature children of wrath. In the midst of such a diabolical place, God sovereignly, supremely, miraculously intervenes. Listen to verse 4. We read verse 1, 2, and 3. And verse 4 immediately takes a different take. He says, but God. (laughs) But God. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us even when we were dead and our sins and trespasses made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That's good news. Now, this morning, I just want us to chew on two main things in the first two verses that I read. And like I said, we'll wrap up that section of verses two, of verses four, five, six, and seven next week, Lord willing. But two, two main observations. All right, and the first one is this. The first one is this. Number one, God Himself miraculously intervenes for our salvation. God. Himself. I'm particular with my language here now. God Himself miraculously, divinely, sovereignly, whatever word you want to use, He intervenes for our salvation. Oh my goodness, the beauty of those two words. Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians that they were once dead, they were once children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God. But God. But God. When we were powerless and dead, God intervened. God intervened. Wow. That is significant. Two little words. Those two words, just six little letters, one conjunction and one personal pronoun, may be, may be, just some of the greatest words in the Bible. Because if it wasn't for that but God, it would be, oh me, we're doomed. (laughs) Wow. But God. Those words tell us how the Gospel rescued our lives. The only reason that any one of us in this room are saved in this very moment is because God 
God, but God moved to miraculously save us. That God, wow. That's, that's, that is euangelion. That is, that's, that's gospel. That means good news. I'm not speaking in tongues. I spoke Greek. All right? That's what that means. That's what that means. Wow. God always, no exceptions, always has to intervene and initiate salvation or salvation is not going to happen. What did Jesus say in John, the sixth chapter, the 44th verse? He said, unless the Father draws one, then no one, you hear that? No one can come to me. God must intervene. God Himself. And that's to me one of the cool things about that. God Himself. But God God Himself intervenes. God Himself does this. God didn't send some angel. God didn't send a lesser God. God didn't, God didn't do. God did it Himself. God did it Himself. God Himself stepped into time. God Himself clothed Himself in human flesh. God Himself took on the garments of the human robe and walked this earth for 33 years. God Himself went to Calvary's cross. God Himself went to Golgotha. God Himself was nailed and pierced by the religious devils of this world so that God Himself could pour upon Himself the wrath that you and I rightly deserve. Wow. Wow. God Himself comes and rescues the souls of men and women. And this but God has made all the difference through all the ages. Wow. You can go back to Genesis, several places, but one that's standing out to me is Genesis 17. Abram had a but God experience. It was because God miraculously intervened in the life of Abram that Abram became Abraham. And it was through him that the promise of coming Messiah was going to come through that line. And though we look back to Christ that came, he still was saved by faith in that coming Messiah. Wow. You see, it was but God, a but God experience that changed Saul on, in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. From Saul to Paul. And he was used, this killer of Christians, this persecutor of the church. It was a but God experience that turned him into the author of most of your New Testament. Wow. 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 Your own pastor heard the gospel all his life. 
But at the age of 16, coming off of a strange philosophical and egocentric journey through occultism and deism and agnosticism and some sort of self-inflating covert narcissism, God intervened. God sovereignly, supernaturally intervened. And when I was indifferent to God and I was not, hear me, I was not looking for Jesus. He blew my mind away. And my eyes were open. And I saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, by grace, I repented and believed. In that moment, it was only because of God. Only God. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege of baptizing Caitlin. Minnick. Why? She had heard gospel truths all her life, and should you plant the seed? She was raised in a Christian home. She was around Christian influences. But somewhere along the line, there was a but God, and there was a desire to know this God, and there was a desire for that salvation to be right, and we got to be a part of God's rescue operation and had the privilege of baptizing her which did not save, but professed the salvation that already occurs. Wow. Wow. You see, I don't know, it, it may be so with some of you today that are sitting right here, or somebody that's listening to this somewhere. I don't know. It may be that there are those that are here or those that are listening that are wearing their fine Sunday morning dress. They look real nice. Some of you, you look real nice. You look like you're going to a funeral. Perhaps you're going to your own because you're dead. I don't know that, but God, but God, but God, but God may be setting you up for a great, sovereign, supernatural, miraculous salvation this day that nobody can earn, that nobody can work up, that nobody can create, that nobody can work their way into the presence of God with. He may be about to sovereignly and supernaturally rescue you and you will will by faith come to Christ. By grace you have been saved. Wow. Wow. Now, consider the reason behind this divine, miraculous intervention that brings us to the second main observation. And that would be this. God's intervention was so because of His mercy and love. God's intervention was so because of His mercy and love. 
Notice that the text says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive. Wow. That's significant. Why did God orchestrate a rescue operation for a dead sinner? Why? Because He is rich in mercy and great in love. He is rich in mercy and He is great in love. That's what the text says. And the text is true. You want to know things about God, you can't sit around at home and share your opinion because your opinion is worthless. You want to know something about God, look in His Word and see what the Word of God says. He is rich in mercy. That's a pregnant phrase. The word rich refers to an overabundance, refers to being without measure, refers to an unlimited state. And that characteristic of being rich uh, suggests that God possesses an overabundant, measureless, unlimited quantity of mercy toward certain people. The word mercy, it is a word that refers to goodness or kindness toward the miserable and the afflicted. And it's coupled with the desire to help them, which really develops into the term compassion. But compassion is mercy in action and mercy is really an action. So they're really synonyms in a way. We see this rich mercy in Jesus' earthly ministry. And we should, for He is God come in human flesh. Often we read of Jesus looking at the hurt and the affliction of people and how He was full of mercy. Being moved by compassion, He would touch them and He would touch them in the midst of their great need. Often bringing salvation to them. Well, guys, there was never a more afflicted, sick group than those that were described in verses 1, 2, and 3. They were wicked. They were fallen in their condition. They were continual in their rebellion. But in spite of their sinfulness and in spite of their rebellion... God looked upon them with mercy, with great mercy. And He did something. And mercy also carries with it this idea of not having what one deserves. And mercy, the Lord's mercy, turns away the wrath from the children of wrath who deserve that wrath. And He extends to those children of wrath mercy and forgiveness and salvation and 
righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Wow. So he does this because he's rich in mercy, but he's also what? Great in love. And you see, the richness of his mercy is actually the outflow of the greatness of his love. If he was not great in love, he would not be rich in mercy. But he is rich in mercy because he is great in love. Agape. Love. And this is God's moving reason, immediate reason, for rescuing sinners in the way that He does. Now ultimately, and we get this from Ephesians chapter 1, He does what He's doing for the praise of His glorious grace, for the praise of His glory, and by loving in the way that He loves, and by having the mercy that He has, it brings God great glory. And so ultimately, really, our salvation and our rescue is not so much about us as it is about throwing the light on the greatness of God. Wow. Wow. He is great in love. Oh, how great! is the love that the Father has lavished upon us, would write John in 1 John. It's a love that John would write in John's Gospel that moved God to give His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him, that is trust in Him, that is cling to Him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Wow. This great love is an everlasting love. Jeremiah the prophet says of it in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 that God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This everlasting love is what moved God to give up Christ in our place. For Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 8 that while we were sinners, Christ demonstrated His love for us in this, that He died. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinful. This love is agape love. It is a truly, purely unconditional love. In other words, God loves you the way that He loves you, not because of you, but because it is God who has chosen and determined to love. And there are no external circumstances that influence that love. God will never love His child any less than He loves them. Than He loves them. And He loves them much. Paul also wrote, wrote, In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, he said, what did Paul say? For I am convinced of this, that neither height nor depth, neither angel nor demon, nor the past, nor anything in the future will be able to separate us from the love, the agape of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. This love... This rich, this great love towards us. It is not some generic, general love. It is a love that is specific. 
And it is a love that is personal. Jesus said in John 15 to His disciples in verse 9, He said, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Specific. Wow. And the amazing thing about this love is the amazing grace that is behind it. Because in our text in Ephesians 2, He loved us. He loved us when we were dead sinners. The text says He loved us even... Here it is. This is the truth. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. God does not wait for us to improve our condition. He does not wait for us to reform ourselves. He did not wait until we got better. No, He set His love on us in eternity past even while we were going to be born dead in our sins and trespasses. He loved us in spite of our wickedness. He loved us to transform us. He reached down to us knowing that we could not and would not reach up to Him. Wow. Wow. This kind of love is hard to comprehend. How God can just love evil people the way that He does. But praise God that He does. Because it is by grace that we have been saved. Amen. Grace saving us not that we would remain as we were, but transformative grace that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and be conformed more and more to His image as we live and as we hurt and as we stumble and as we fall and as we get up and as we press on and as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God, He's got us, He's at work all along. It was a grace that saved us to take us from where we were to where we never could be to take us from the image of sin and death and mold us into the image of He who is life. Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Alright. Guys, I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. and It's time for us to respond to the truth. My question to you today is how, how will you respond to it? Will you respond rightly? Or will you just not respond like a dead man? May God be glorified in these moments.